hppodcraft.com. I had never intended to speak or write again of the Charrier House. Once I'd fled Providence on that shocking night of discovery, there are memories which every man would seek to suppress, to disbelieve, to wipe out of existence. But I am forced to set down now the narrative of my brief acquaintance with the house on Benefit Street and my precipitate flight therefrom, lest some innocent person be subjected to indignity by the police in an effort to explain the horrible discovery the police have made at last, that same ghastly horror it was my lot to look upon before any other human eye. And what I saw was surely far more terrible than what remained to be seen after all these years, the house having reverted to the city, as I had known it would. That was the first paragraph of The Survivor by August Leth, and it may be difficult for our listeners to tell because of that excellent reading by John Hancock, re- mm-hmm. returning to the show, doing a great job. That paragraph was also the first sentence of the story. <laughs> yes, it was. Derleth was doing his best to write like H.P. Lovecraft, and that means rolling right through the stop signs. He wasn't just doing his best to write like Lovecraft. This story is based on a lengthy plot sketch that Lovecraft actually wrote in 1934. Mm. And that's why we're talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are here at hppodcraft.com. My name is Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And right now, yes, we have a book to talk about. Yes, that's right. This week, we are proud of our fine sponsor. This book is called The Shadow Out of Providence by Ezra Clavery. A Lovecraftical metatext in three parts. The Shadow Out of Providence comprises a play and two short stories featuring illustrations by Timothy Hutchings, Errol Otis, and Dan Zetwak. It critiques Lovecraft's racism, his nostalgia, for aristocracy and his florid style while it celebrates his work's continuing influence on fiction, movies, fine art, and gaming. I think this is something that people in our audience will really go nuts for. I got a copy and it's a really beautiful book. It's a collection of artifacts written with drawings and photos that peer into this alternate reality where Lovecraft had a successful marriage, lived into his 60s, was wildly famous, but he also had a black half-brother. Yeah. Which is really interesting because, you know, his dad was a traveling salesman. Mm-hmm. So it, it really all kind of fits together in a really interesting way. It sort of looks at Lovecraft and his work with a different perspective that gives us some unexpected insight into the man and his work. Yeah, and the way, and like you said, it's got such a cool layout. The, the art's great. There's so many things to look at. I've been just keeping it in the living room and pick it up and read a section here and there. It's great for that kind of browsing. Yeah. Uh, the author's pursuing his PhD at my alma mater, U of I. Oh, yeah. And I believe he's a St. Louis native as well, my wife's hometown. So I got to give him the hometown push. Guys, go buy this book. And you can pick it up if you're going to be in Providence for Necronomicon in August. Ezra will have a booth there and you can pick it up from him personally. He'll sign it. Maybe he'll give you a hug. I don't know. <laughs> he might, depending. That's what I heard. Depending who you are. But you can also get it at the website, shadowoutofprovidence.com. Yes, we will link out to it. Go check it out. Pick it up. You won't regret it. It's a really awesome book. One last thing before we get into the meat of the episode is that we've been suffering a lot of cyber attacks recently. You know, the thing with the whole boner pills that were being advertised on our feed. And then once we fixed that, the people got angry at us for stopping that. So they redoubled their efforts and we were having all these problems. I just want to say thank you to Scott Mortimer. He is a listener and he has stepped forward and he's helped us get through these problems. He is an eldritch god, in my opinion. Amazing guy. Thank you so much for helping us. Scott Mortimer, If there was anything I could do for you, I would do it. You're an angel. No, you're a baby angel. You're that precious. Just so folks know, this month is August, and August is for 
August Derleth. Yes, this is the most perfect marrying of an author in a month that we have ever had on the show. Drop the mic. <laughs> Well, I feel like we've cheated in a way. I know. It's just that there's nothing creative about it at all. Now, we have talked about him before. Mm-hmm. Not favorably at times, but we're going to give him some love now. Yeah. Pay him the attention that he deserves. Because there are good and bad things about Derleth, but mm-hmm. it's not all bad. No, not at all. And, and quickly back to what I was saying about the story, The Survivor. This is from a collection called The Watchers Out of Time. I got that book in paperback a long time ago. I think I've talked about it pl- plenty of times. It was billed as a book by H.P. Lovecraft. That was on the cover. Yes. Closer analysis revealed that they were collaborations with this guy, August yeah. Derleth. That's the first time I heard of him. They weren't collaborations. They were posthumous collaborations. Yeah. And usually based on fragments or sketches Lovecraft had jotted down, maybe he would grab something from letters between he and Derleth. Mm -hmm. There are 16 of these stories out there. Like I say, they might have paraphrases or small quotes, but these are definitely 100% Derleth stories. I mean, he he wrote these. During Lovecraft's life, you know, he put his name on a lot of stories that maybe he didn't write a lot of, that he just coached Mm -hmm. through, but at least he had some input. This feels a little bit like when they made Fred Astaire sell vacuum cleaners to put his name (laughs) on these stories. And and I and I guess that's the the thing that has soured people on August Derleth, right? And and that's the contradiction that he represents. But he also founded Arkham House, yes. with Donald Wandry, and is responsible for getting Lovecraft's work published after his death. He invented the term Cthulhu Mythos, which like it or hate it, we bandy it around all the time. That's what people use. I know Lovecraft preferred Yogg-Sothery, right? But that's not what people use. And no, even the way that he kind of classified a lot of these creatures has carried over into how we perceive Lovecraft's work. It's really important to point out, and we've we've said it once before on the show, if not many times, is that he, by making Arkham House, kept Lovecraft's stuff in print. And if it wasn't for him, he would have just disappeared into obscurity. And think about how many uh, shows that we've done about Lovecraft that are bad. (laughs) I mean, I would hate to be painted. uh, Hopefully we've done some stuff to popularize this author, but we've also made a lot of terrible jokes. Yep, riding on the coattails of Lovecraft. Look at those guys profiteering off of somebody's work. So I also feel a a little close to Derleth in that respect. Yeah, (laughs) a bit of kinship in a way. Uh, Let's talk about the story, though. Starting off with a quote from Algernon Blackwood's The Empty House. Mm -hmm. That's what the story actually opens with, is a a quote. Right. It talks about how houses can just have creepy vibes. That this is a thing that is natural in the world, that for some reason it's not necessarily ghosts, it's not creepy demons, it could just be something abnormal about a house. Right. It's just got that bad feeling. And then uh, after that opening quote, we get that paragraph-shaped sentence we heard at the top. Uh, <laughs> some kind of horror has been discovered at the at the house, a place that the narrator fled at some time in the past, and he just didn't want to think about it anymore. Hmm. But it's getting opened up again, and so he's got to tell the real story of what went down there. And our narrator, his name is Atwood. Mm-hmm. He's an antiquarian, someone who deals in very old things, and he is relating the story about his move to Providence in 1930. He was visiting his friend Gamwell, who lives just down the street from this house, mm-hmm. uh, and he finds out that the house was called the Cherrière House. The Cherrière House was supposedly haunted. Mm-hmm. That was the, the local legend in the, on the street. And no one has lived there for a while. No. Uh, the narrator says he doesn't think the house is haunted, Again, kind of touching on the beginning quote. Right. It has this kind of aura of gloom. There's something dark and foreboding about it. Eh, haunted house. Maybe I'll lease it. He notices that the architecture is something similar to buildings that he's seen in Quebec. Yeah, that's the thing that really makes it stand out. And none of the other buildings are, are 
built that way. He goes to see his friend Gamwell, uh, who appears to be sick, though nobody knows at the time that Gamwell's actually on his deathbed. He's that right. he's that ill. Mm-hmm. And the narrator says, what about that Quebec house and, and who lived there? What's the deal? It's a man named Cherrier, mm-hmm. who was a French surgeon from Quebec. Yeah, the Cherrier house was tenanted by a guy named Cherrier. Uh, Gamwell said that he saw the guy once years ago and that he was tall and rough-skinned. Mm which is kind of a weird way to describe somebody. But he died only three years ago and nobody in the neighborhood saw much of him. He was just kind of a recluse, this guy. Mm -hmm. But he was very old. The details of the doctor's death are vague. Nobody really knows exactly what happened to him, what he died from. Yeah, he kept himself. People didn't know him well enough to to get into what was happening with them. One family actually moved into the house for about a month since the doctor died, but they left, you know, after a month because of strange smells and dampness. And the house has just been empty since then. Yeah, but it's not going to be torn down or anything because Sherrier left instructions with his estate to keep paying property taxes. It's going to stay standing for people say like 20 years. And I guess it can be leased by the lawyers, but that's it. I don't know how that works exactly, but they, they've decided that he's not around, so they're going to lease it out, even though they can't tear it down. Sherrier wrote vaguely that some nephew in the military would eventually show up to claim it. So Atwood tells Gamble that, you know, I, I, I kind of like that place, and I, I think I'm going to rent it. And Gamble's like, oh, hey, man, I have heard some horrible things about that house. You should not rent it. And he goes, oh, yeah, okay, what, what did you hear? You know, stuff. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want to tell him. stuff. No, he doesn't tell him. He just is really dodgy about it. He goes, look, if you're not going to be straight with me, just give me the info. And he says, all right, fine. And he gives him the name of the law firm that handles the house. Mm -hmm. Atwood leases it for up to six months. He goes in. The place is well kept. There was a cleaning service that went in about once a month to just dust the place and, you know, keep it in order. But everything is as it was when Dr. Sherrier died. So you, you have a rational brain because you explained away an important clue. There was no cleaning service. There wasn't? It's inexplicably clean. Is it? I had expected to find the house cobwebbed and dusty, but I was surprised to learn this was not the case, though I had not understood that the lawyers had undertaken to care for the house during the half century. It was to stand, short of someone's appearing to lay claim to it. So nobody's going to send in cleaners until this mysterious nephew shows up. Even hearing you say that, read that sentence again. I know, that's... (laughs) The sentence is, I had not understood that the lawyers had undertaken to care for the house. Well, just because he had not understood it doesn't... Is that saying that he... It's saying that he's surprised it's clean because he had no information that would make him think that cleaners had been in there. That's why he expected to find it cobwebbed and dusty. And then I could be wrong. I thought what he was saying was when he walked in, he was surprised. But then later he found out at that time he didn't have the information that cleaners were keeping the house maintained. That is the joy that you can find (laughs) in reading some August (laughs) Derleth. It is very unclear at points. Yes, I actually think he's laying a clue there that somebody is living in the house. Right. And somebody's doing something. But that is a preposterous clue to me. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Without showing the hand too quickly here, frickin' lives in... He lives in the ground. Why is he? Why would he be like doing dusting and stuff? Like in Lovecraft's original notes, he says the neighbors had been sighting a crocodile man in a French maid outfit, <laughs> swiffering and dusting. <laughs> Nobody knew what a swiffer was at that time either. But he left that out and just decided to be uh, a little more obtuse. Forget that detail though, because I I don't want to spoil this story for you. It doesn't. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, but, but the house it's, uh, a, it's it's a it's a weird house. Uh, the rooms either seem too big or too small, mm-hmm. but there's nothing in between. Uh, the back garden is completely overgrown. Downstairs, there's also a lab and library set up. Uh, strangely, there's all these diagrams and charts of reptiles and dinosaurs all over the lab and library. Yeah, that's the work that this doctor was into. The house occupies quite a bit of space. It says it's three lots in width, and in the back it goes all the way across the block, basically, yeah. to a stone wall. So there's only one other small lot behind it with a house. And the other thing about that lab and that library and in the work that he's got there, it seems like he just left in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. It's not put away or anything like that. It's almost right. like the cigar still in the ashtray. It's like the doctor right. left right in the middle of working. I forgot this comes up later. There's an old well. Oh, right. Out in the backyard. Boarded yeah. up in the backyard. Of course. Yeah, because that plays into the story mm-hmm. later. So this house is really amazing. Much older than he thought it was. It seemed to be built in 1700. Uh, Dr. Cherrier was only 80 when he died. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, So the house seems to be named after uh, the most recent recipient. Uh, Atwood goes to the grave, which is actually in the backyard of the house. Yeah, Cherrier got approval to, to be buried in his own backyard. Just has his death date on the stone, yeah. but no birth date. It says uh, Jean-Francois Cherrier, his job, surgeon. The places of residence or professional occupation, which is Paris, Quebec, Providence, and then the year of his death, 1927. Mm-hmm. As an antiquarian, it seems that would just can't leave a mystery. So he keeps digging. He writes the city's record keepers for information about Cherrier, only to find that there's one guy born in Bayonne in 1636. There was a record on this guy. He was uh, studied in Paris. He was a surgeon and with the French army as well. And then he moved to Quebec. Uh, all these places match up with Sherrier's grave. So it's kind of strange that this guy who was born in 1636 actually mm-hmm. did all the same things that the gravestone has on it. <laughs> right. It's pretty obvious. And as we said before, this nephew that maybe in military service is supposed to show up at some point to claim. Fine. They don't even know who the nephew is. In fact, when he presses the lawyers about it, he goes, well, they never... We never said nephew, really. It's the last of his line, you know, whoever the sole male survivor is. There should be a bunch of Sherrier guys. There should be sons and nephews. There should at least be sisters and wives if the line was mm-hmm. going to continue. Anybody except for Dr. Sherrier himself. But no, he's the only person who has a record. It's as if he's been alive for a few centuries. Yeah, And I imagine that when you're somebody who does have supernatural longevity, maybe you didn't cover up some of those details pre-20th century. Maybe it was easier to get away with. Yeah. It's starting to creep up on old Dr. Sherrier. Atwood checks in on Gamwell, who's very ill. He's got some bad condition, which they don't really go into, Mm -hmm. and he's bedridden. And it seems like you said he's going to die. Yeah, the doctors say don't excite him or tire him with too many questions. And so he says, I heard you. I'm going to go in and I'm going to tire him with a bunch of questions about Sherrier. I mean, (laughs) nevertheless, I was determined to ferret out what I could about Sherrier. So maybe our narrator's the one who killed him, you know, just simply by interrogating him. Uh, so Atwood asked Gamwell when he last saw Sherrier, and he's like, oh, God, I, 1907. And he goes, well, how old do you think he looked then? And he goes, oh, probably 80. And he goes, okay, so that means that he was like 100 when he died. And then Gamwell goes, yeah, sure. And he goes, well, what did he look like? And then Gamwell gives this description. Take a newt, grow him a little, teach him to walk on his hind legs, and dress him in elegant clothes. I give you Dr. Jean-Francois Cherrier, except that his skin was rough, almost horny. A cold man. He lived in another world. Lizardly man in proper clothes. Atwood is getting frustrated because he's not getting any hard facts. He talks to the neighbors, but they all think that the house is evil. There's this old woman, Mrs. Hepzibah Cobbett, who lives in that little house behind the Sherrier mm-hmm. garden wall. And, and she's the superstitious townsperson, you know, she thinks. Right. 
It's a devil's house. And she said she's seen him. He's a tall man, bent like a sickle, with a wee tuft of beard like a goat's whiskers under his chin, which is important later. And there's always things crawling around at his feet that she couldn't see, like snakes. There's also a sound that's coming out of the uh, out of the house, a barking of some kind. Not like a dog or a fox, but something. He's, she says, but nobody will believe a poor old woman with one foot in her grave. He's buying what she's saying. However... Still no hard facts, just people saying some stuff. He goes into the house, is looking around a bit. Maybe he's trying to find more clues there. He sees a portrait up there, and there is this guy who who he assumes is uh, Cherrier. It says JFC, initial under it. Well, you know, he looks a little like the descriptions. High cheekbones, sunken cheeks, dark blazing eyes. And then that stink that everybody was talking about, why the people left that, that kind of musky stinky smell which kind of smells like zoos swamps Mm. stagnant pools reptile houses yeah (laughs) you can't figure out where the smell is coming from it's like it's coming from the walls it's that snaky taint that uh, robert e howard talked about (laughs) is the snaky taint Mm. he then talks about how he was seeing things and hearing things because he would hear that barking that the woman described He, he hears a curious barking sound from the garden late at night Mm-hmm. But the visions are even more ridiculous, right? The illusion that he had was an oddly bent reptilian figure haunted the darkness of the garden outside. <laughs> it's like, come on, dude. Yeah, wouldn't you just think, oh, there's some kind of animal out there? You know, you wouldn't think, that's an oddly bent reptilian figure. <laughs> what does that mean? It doesn't it make any sense. Like, if it's a reptilian figure, it wouldn't be up on the hind legs walking around like a person. It just, it's ridiculous. But... To defend Derelith here, Lovecraft tipped his hand like crazy all the time as well. Oh, yeah. This is definitely in the, in the style of a Lovecraft story. I don't think it would have been one of his better ones. No. But it's doing pretty well at approximating. Yes. However, I do feel it is... He's gone a little bit too far with it. Yeah. I didn't know if there was going to be a snake guy in this. But at this point, I was pretty sure of it. And that actually yeah. made me more interested in the story because I was like, oh, yeah. good. A bad guy from He-Man is going to show up and that's going to be awesome. <laughs> So let's do it. Atwood has an incident. One night, someone breaks into the house. He runs down to see what's going on, and the invader slips out the window. There's no electricity in this house, by the way. They did manage to work running water, but nobody's ever wired it up. So he's been having to get around with just lanterns. And that's unfortunate here because the lantern blinds him when he goes in to see who the invader is. In the brief glimpse I had of him in the one yellow light of the lamp held overhead and partially blinding me, he seemed to glisten. He shone blackly and he seemed to be wearing a skin-tight suit of some rough black material. I saw him for only an instant before he leapt through the open window into the darkness of the garden. I would have followed then, had it not been for the disquieting things I saw in the light of the lamp. Where the invader had stood, there were the irregular marks of feet, of wet feet, and more, of feet which were oddly broad, the toes of which were so long-nailed as to leave the marks of those nails before each toe, and where he had bent above the papers, there was the same wetness. And over all, there hung the powerful reptilian musk I had begun to accept as an integral part of the house, so powerful indeed that I almost reeled and fainted. Eh, almost fainted. This isn't Lovecraft. No, not authentic. (laughs) If this was Lovecraft, he would have fainted. He would have straight up fainted. What Atwood notices is that some of the papers are gone. Mm. The papers, when he starts digging around in them, are about the longevity of crocodiles and alligators. (laughs) And it's lucky because he's already read these, so big deal. There are some suggestions in these papers Mm. that there were operations 
performed on subjects to extend their life. But the subject's not named. So this doctor might have been doing some unethical things. Probably. But there's more in the uh, in those documents. Aside from the operations and the talk about crocodiles, there's... This is where we get into the heavy stuff. Yes, this is where we get into the Yogg-Sothery. Mm. References to Cthulhu and Dagon and the Deep Ones and all that stuff. It, this makes a connection that dinosaurs and reptiles are maybe related to Cthulhu and Dagon and mm-hmm. these entities from former Lovecraft stories. This doctor is researching all of that, so it's a long continuum to find the source of everlasting life. The next day, he goes out and buys a gun and a flashlight because this intruder uh, might come back mm-hmm. and he wants to be prepared. Forget the oil lamps. You need a flashlight if you're going to take down some alligator men. Everybody knows that. So Atwood stays in and he does some more looking around the library and he finds some good books, books that we've heard of and talked about on the show before. Once again, it's the section of the text where you just identify somebody's library. <laughs> Which is very Lovecraftian. Yeah. yeah. Atwood also finds a notebook, all with Sherrier's handwriting with these very strange entries. Mm. One is 1850. 51 Arkham Goad is the name, D-O. And it has a drawing, presumably, of this Goad character, emphasizing features on them, which are Batrachian, uh, you know, uh, Mm frog-like. He's got a wide mouth, heavy lips, low brow, webbed eyes. What what does webbed eyes mean? I don't know. Squat physiognomy. He goes, maybe D-O stands for Deep One. I love that. It's like an earned title. Because it says Ace of Goad, (laughs) D-O. It's like a television show, maybe like a romantic drama. <laughs> and then it goes on to go in 1857, St. Augustine, this guy, Henry Bishop, he's got scaly skin. There's another person in 1861 who lived to be 117 years old that has crusty hands, double jaw construction, and also goes into 1863, Innsmouth, uh, Marsh, Wait, Elliot, Gilman families, Captain Obed Marsh is a trader in Polynesia. So yeah, this guy had clearly read Shadow Over Innsmouth. 1871, Jed Price, billed as the alligator man. He's a carnival dude and he hangs out in a pool of alligators, also reptilian skin. Yeah. So basically this guy has been hunting down people that either are part monster or look like they're mixed with an animal or and then seeing how long they live so if they if they have reptilian or amphibious features does that tie into them having a longer life it seems that sherrier was looking for some human connection to reptiles to make his work bear fruit mm-hmm. atwood also finds out that sherrier also checked out the occult so he got into some voodoo stuff egyptian myth he goes into more detail about the elder gods and the great old ones. right which is the big switch in derleth's work that folks often get upset about Right. This segment. Finally, and most important according to the surgeon's notes, was a completely alien culture, which was as old as Earth. Nay, older, involving ancient elder gods and their terrible, unceasing conflict with equally primeval old ones, who bore such names as Cthulhu, Hastur, Yogg-Sothoth, Shub-Nigrath, and Nyarlathotep, and who were served in turn by such curious beings as the Chocho people, the Deep Ones, the Shantaks, the Abominable Snowmen, and others, some of whom appeared to have been a suborder of human being, but others of which were either definite mutations or not human at all. I don't know if that was suggested in Lovecraft or not. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I, those yeah. things get kind of knocked around interchangeably yeah. in his work. But I think this is where people say, hey, hold on now. And, you know, Derleth had a more Christian view of the world than Lovecraft, who was obviously atheistic. Derleth was molding those creations into having this age-old war where there was kind of a good side and a bad side. Kind of out of the spirit of what of what Lovecraft was doing. Robert and uh, Price talked about that and how he just sort of made it a little bit more hopeful because there are some stories where the good guys kind of win 
in Lovecraft as well. And mm-hmm. so he's just trying to put that kind of a little bit more hopeful spin on it, which, of course, is kind of the antithesis of what Lovecraft is trying to do with his stories. Well, look, we just read The Space Eaters and that had cool monsters in it, but they ended up, you know, winning using a crucifix. As long as you don't accept this as any kind of doctrine system, then it doesn't it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So it's nothing to get your panties in a twist about it. No. Anyway, it seems like the doctor was also doing some surgery, uh, altering somebody, and this is one of his notes, altering their tailbone, Mm -hmm. opening up a kind of an aperture in their bottom, I guess, so that the tailbone can be extended. And then it says together with other unusual practices of a macabre nature. So maybe you're opening up the slits in the skin and you're opening up the space for the tailbone because you're going to do something that will have you grow a tail and will have your skin expand. I guess what it is is that there's some kind of magic or ritual that he's doing to get lizardy. And then it says you can live a couple of centuries, but after you pass away, there's a gestation period. Yes. And the individual could emerge again, alter an aspect, but be alive again and begin another lengthy span of time. Right. You kind of cocoon up and then you come right. out and you come out and then they're going to like they'll take a Q-tip and wipe your eyes a little bit and then they'll <laughs> offer you a cucumber and then you'll go, eh, sure. <laughs> No, you don't want it? You don't want it? You don't want the cucumber? Yeah. But while uh, our protagonist is reading about all these things in Dr. Sherrier's research, he starts to feel like, is somebody watching me? He does a cool little trick, opens up his pocket watch, and in the mirror in the in the watch, or in the highly mm-hmm. polished case, he sees some kind of horrible travesty of a human face behind him. Yeah. So somebody's peeking over his shoulder while he's looking at the notebook. He turns around. It's gone. The per- It's gone. At what sits in the dark waiting for the intruder to return, he's armed with his gun and the flashlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, he hears the sound. Then that bark—it's that barking like a like an alligator. Yeah, and I, I think it's just the the lizard thing trying to communicate with him, like, "Hey, don't shoot me. <laughs> I'm a person. You know, I have rights. You just don't understand me." Yeah. Just because I lived a long time. I mean, if if he'd come up with some kind of serum that helped people live for a long time, he'd be hailed as a hero. Right. And here, that's what this guy's working on. But because he looks like a lizard man, it's like, hell no, I'm going to shoot you. And that's it. Blam, blam, blam. Four times. And he's like, don't shoot me, man. I'm a doctor. (laughs) This story is definitely in support of kill the things you don't understand. Yeah. Because the thing doesn't really do anything bad. When he breaks into the house, he's getting some papers because he doesn't want anybody to steal his research because he's put his whole life into this, his long, long life. He doesn't do anything malicious at all Uh -uh. in the story. They maybe imply some stuff with the surgery, but I think he was doing the surgery on himself. Yeah, I think so too. Anyway, he blasts him, hits him all four times, (laughs) he runs off, follows the trail of blood to the backyard. The old boarded up well, guess what? Open, and there's a ladder going down into it. The well is mostly dry. It leads to a tunnel that leads to the coffin, the coffin of Sherry Air. He mm-hmm. opens up the casket. It may well be charged that after so many years, my memory is no longer to be relied upon. But what I saw there was imprinted indelibly on my memory. For there, in the glow of my light, lay a newly dead being, the implications of whose existence overwhelmed me with horror. This was the thing I had killed. Half man, half Saurian. It was a ghastly travesty upon what had once been a human being. Its clothes were split and torn by the horrible mutations of the flesh, by the crusted skin which had burst its bonds. Its hands and unshod feet were flat, powerful in appearance, claw-like. I gazed in speechless terror at the shuddersome, tail-like appendage which pushed bluntly out from the base of the spine, at the terribly elongated crocodilian jaw, to which still grew a tuft of hair like a goat's beard. All this I saw before a merciful unconsciousness overcame me. 
for I had seen enough to recognize what lay in that coffin, him who had lain there in the cataleptic torpor since 1927, waiting his turn to come back in frightfully altered form to live again. Dr. Jean-Francois Charrier, surgeon, born in Bayonne in 1636, died in Providence in 1927, and I knew that the survivor of whom he had written in his will was none other than himself, born again, renewed by a hellish knowledge of long-forgotten eldritch rites, more ancient than mankind, as old as that early vernal earth on which great beasts fought and tore. Just like that opening paragraph... That was one long sentence. <laughs> There's another huge long sentence in the end, and it's all italicized. <laughs> Almost the entire paragraph is italicized. Yeah. It's not just a few words. He overdoes it, yeah. Ah, he's dead, you fool. It's not that. <laughs> or, you know, no. it's, it's this entire thing, which we knew was coming for a long time. So that's the story. Yeah. Like I said, I was surprised that I enjoyed it. It's not good, but it's paced pretty well. It's not slow. It typifies the form. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It seemed like a less good Lovecraft story. It was, again, about that fear of human-animal hybridization, but it had less to do with lineage and somebody doing it to themselves willfully. So in that respect, it kind of turns some of Lovecraft's themes on their head. This would be like if author German was trying to become an ape. You know, I mean, it is interesting in that respect, I thought. Yeah. I really was on the side of Dr. Sherry here. I wish that we'd gotten to know him personally. Why is he doing this? He could have had a cool backstory. I'm sure he did. No, I mean, yeah, maybe he has some centuries old love. He's trying to do this to himself so he can, you know, resurrect his dead wife or something romantic could be happening here. We don't know. Or he just fell in love with an alligator. Or he fell in love with an alligator and that this was his path. (laughs) Yeah, this is how he got it. Actually, I think that's much more likely. Yeah. We're going to continue with August in August. We are. The next story that we're going to cover is going to be one that I'm choosing, Chad. You don't have a choice in the matter. All right, you pick it. I'm going to pick it. It's the Innsmouth Clay. Innsmouth Clay? All right. I'm only choosing that one because... It's got Innsmouth in the title. So it'll be more fishy, deep one goodness. Yeah. One could assume. I want to thank John Hancock for reading for us again. He is a treasure and a delight, and he could really make one sentence work. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) One really, really long sentence. Good job, John. You're amazing. I want to thank our sponsor. Yes, absolutely. Uh, The Shadow Out of Providence by Ezra Clavery, a Lovecraftical metatext in three parts. It's an excellent book with wonderful illustrations, a play, two short stories, all about alternate ways to read Lovecraft, the kind of stuff that we talk about here. Talks about his influence on fiction and games and fine art, as well as what might have happened if things had gone differently in his life. And it's just such a cool book. I think folks should definitely pick it up. Everybody should get it. You can get it at Necronomicon or ShadowOutOfProvidence.com. More August to come. In August, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. Podcraft.com has produced this record from actual recordings made at sea.